Um, I want to take us on a journey into the future and into the past. I take lots of organizations on journeys into their future, but tonight I want to take you on a journey into your future. I want us to take a journey into your past and consider your destiny. And my challenge tonight to each of us, and it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from, what country you were born in or what country you'd like to live in, it doesn't matter whether you are an atheist today or a Hindu or an agnostic or a follower of Buddhism or a follower of Jesus as I am, my challenge to you is to take hold of all of your passion and energy, whatever you believe God's destiny is for you, whether you believe in him or not, and if you don't believe in him, whatever you believe humanity has given you, or whatever you believe the genes of life have shelled out for you, but to take hold of every opportunity you have to make the greatest difference you can in the very short time that you have here. I, I lecture, as has as been said, to all kinds of different organizations, so... Uh, yeah, two weeks ago, I was with Google talking about the future of digital marketing and the future of mobile and location-based marketing, all of that. The following day, talking to one of the largest infrastructure companies in the world. It doesn't matter what the company is. The issues, fundamentally, are the same. And that's what we're going to have a look at tonight. See, I started off as a physician looking after people dying of cancer, firstly, as a hospice doctor. And then in 1987, HIV came knocking on the door of my teaching hospital where I was. And I was changed because I was impacted by seeing people die of a terrible illness for which there was no vaccine, no cure, and seemed to be very little effective treatment. This was a long time ago, and it was like leprosy. No one wanted to get involved. People here got involved. In this church, got involved. People here got trained and got equipped and started extracting people from hospital and allowing them the dignity of being at home with their own family and friends. And I thank God for the witness of this church amongst other churches in London. And I learned something through looking after people dying of cancer, then looking after people dying of AIDS, and then looking after people or helping teams to be inspired to do exactly the same work all over the world. Just today, just at lunchtime today, I was with a dear friend of ours from India who set up, they were leprosy doctors, then they got into AIDS because AIDS was like leprosy all over again. And they started opening their home to people with HIV. They've had now 6,000 people with HIV they've looked after. They now run a clinic. They're offering compassionate care to all kinds of people who come to them in the name of Jesus. And why are they doing that? They're doing that because they can't help it, because they had to seize their destiny, because there was nothing else that they could do but respond to the things that were before them and say, I was made for this moment, and this is what I must do. But I learned one big thing. I learned that life is short. And you know, whenever I almost whenever I start a corporate engagement, it doesn't matter whether it's the Pentagon, it doesn't matter whether it's a Google, it doesn't matter whether it's a, a big energy company. You know what? I show this slide. Life is too short to do things you don't believe in. I want a big shout if you think that's true. Life is too short to waste a single day on things you believe are rubbish. Put your hands up if you think that's true. Life is far too short. It doesn't matter who you are, what you are, what your worldview is, whether you believe in God or whether you don't, it's completely irrelevant. Life is far too short to waste. And I'll tell you this, this is a slide that's caused people all over the world to resign their jobs immediately. Once I was phoned up by someone and he said, you don't know why you're here, do you? I said, no, I'm going to bring you to America. I said, why is that? He said, you're going to give a, a, a lecture to some of the wealthiest people in the world and you have no idea why. I said, no, 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 I have no idea why. The reason why is because you caused such havoc when you spoke to a board in the US a few months back. I'm sorry. I said, well, when you showed a particular slide, one of the heads of one of the largest private banks in the world resigned. A household named person resigned from her post and left almost the following day. I said, I'm so sorry. No, 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 don't be sorry. She's so grateful to you. So why is that? Well, she realized when she saw that slide, she didn't believe in what she was doing. She was selling a whole load of nonsense products. It happened to be that, you know, the best earned products for the bank, but they weren't necessarily the right products for the customer. Hello? She decided that life's too short to waste a single day doing stuff you don't believe in. And I learned something else as too, that when you are in the groove of your destiny, when you are propelled by that inescapable drive to take hold of what it is that you were made for, you just know it in the depth of your being. I tell you, it's like the cogs of eternity are turning. 
Put your hands up if you know what I mean. You're just in the groove. Things start to happen. Things start to happen. Things connect together. I want to talk about that. Now, stuff happens. Stuff happens. It doesn't matter whether you're trying to get away on holiday or whether you're running a, a shipping company or whether you're, well, whether you live in Thailand and you're trying to make computer chips or whether you live next to President Putin like many of my friends in Ukraine. Stuff happens. The world can change incredibly quickly. For an energy company, this was a 20-second event. After 20 seconds, there was another 20-second event, and 40 years of human history changed. Because that 20-second event that followed was a crack in a nuclear reactor in Japan, and that scared the Japanese people, and it scared the German people, and both Japan and Germany cancelled all nuclear forever. Well, at least for, for a while. And as a result, energy policy changed across the European Union. It changed across the United States. It changed globally as a result of that. So 40 seconds can change 40 years of human history. It can change the destiny of entire corporations, which is why agility and being adaptive and being prepared and thinking ahead is really, really important. Now, I've discovered that there is one word which is driving the future. It has driven the last 3,000 years of human history, and it will drive the next 1,000 years of human history, probably. <laughs> and what is this single word that drives the future? It's more important than economics, more important even than mobile technology, more important than, than, than YouTube, more important than Facebook, more important than, uh, than politics, more important than, uh, than... What is this single word which will drive the future? Let me tell you a story. I was late one day to do a rehearsal for a, I mean, a huge ballroom with a, a couple of thousand people, and I was stuck on the 27th floor, and I didn't know what to do. None of the lifts seemed to be working. I punched the lift bump once, and I was tempted for a moment to do something totally crazy. I was actually tempted to touch that lift button more than once. Now, I know that you would never even think of doing such a crazy thing. <laughs> okay, put your hands up if you've done it. <laughs> All right, put your hands up and wave it loudly. Confess, please. It's only me that's on the video, not you. Confess, did you talk to the lift? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I did too. Okay, put up your hands. If last winter you talked to your car when it didn't start. <laughs> okay. You know where this is going, okay. I, I lectured to a thousand airline pilots in America one day. I'm very interested in flying. I'm a permanent gold car customer, even with the BA I've flown so far. If I don't fly another mile, I will be gold till the day I die. So I'm very interested in flying, and I asked them a simple question, these pilots. I said, put up your hands if you talk to your plane. They all talk to the plane. Come on, baby, it's time to go. <laughs> I don't know whether that worries you or not. It should. <laughs> Here's the question. See, what we understand is that the future is being driven by one word. What is the single word which we saw? See, we like to think we're rational, logical, analytical people. And I'll show you a lot of data about science and stuff, which compels me to believe in God. But I'll tell you this, there's one word which drives the future more than anything else, which is emotion. You see, it's reactions to events that make history, it's not the events themselves. The First World War was started as a result of a single association of one person by one bullet. Angela Merkel bringing 800,000 refugees into her country was propelled by one image of one child, not just one, one child. It wasn't the first child that died or drowned on a beach. It was one child, an emotional reaction to one child, not the other 2,500. There was no emotional reaction to that. Reactions, my friends, to history make the future. The reason why energy policy changed in Germany and Japan was because of an emotional reaction. In the UK, we had none. We just said, carry on building. In fact, we just signed a big contract with the Chinese to do just that because they're the other boom country that think nuclear is a good idea. So if you want to know the future of the housing market in London, London, it's emotion. If you want to know the future, whether Greece will stay in or out of the euro, actually, emotion will have quite a lot to do with that. If you want to know which company will get uh, their biggest products across the line in terms of the next generation of mobile phones, it'll be probably be emotion too. So understand emotion, and emotion will help you when you understand that, the psychology of a whole nation, you begin to understand a new way to build products and sell services and satisfy your customers. One of the most important things is not what the customer's thinking, it's how they're feeling. And emotion is very close to trust. And my goodness me, we have an absence of trust right now. Just think about banks. Emotional reaction to banks. We shouldn't be scared of emotion. We are two-sided people, and actually we need both. We need emotional intelligence, we need logical intelligence to be successful. It doesn't matter whether you're in business, or whether you're a husband, or a father. We need both.
We need both these things. And we're back to life is short. Life is short. And that's an emotional statement. It's not just a logical one. It's logically true. But it's an emotional one too. One billion people are alive today who are children. One billion children alive. They will never be again so many children on the face of the earth alive at the same time. Here is another statistic. 85% of the entire humanity who will be living and breathing on the earth in 10 years will be found in the poorest parts of the world. Here's another statistic. Today, already, 1% of the entire world owns half of the wealth of the entire world, and it's getting worse. Within 15 years' time, maybe 20 years' time, 65%, that's nearly at over two-thirds of the whole of humanity's wealth, will be owned by 1% of the human beings. Quite a few of them living here in London. I tell you, that's a serious issue. It's a major, major moral question for our generation. It's unsustainable. History tells us, because of emotion, when you get those kinds of contrasts, another word kicks in, which is revolution. So we are in an uncomfortable place with all kinds of moral hazards right now. One billion people are on the move. Forget 250,000 that's just come from Syria into the European Union. One billion people will be on the move in the next 30 years. Why? Moving for jobs, for opportunity, for safety, for, for, uh, for, for prosperity, for their families. Uh, moving off the land mainly, moving out of rural areas towards towns and cities. Moving to, from cities in, wealth, in poor nations to cities in wealthy nations, taking enormous risks, some of them. And one billion human beings don't have enough to eat because they're part of this, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the majority of humankind that owns very little. So, and when we see these things played out, then uh, this is what happens. You get large migrations, and then you get tragedies, and we see them on the screen, and we haven't seen nothing yet. These are parts of the imbalances, the tensions and pressures within this tiny planet on which we live, which will have to sustain 11 billion people by 2060, all of whom will need food and water and energy and other stuff. And I have good news for you. I actually believe, as a result of the God-given genius that we have, we will find a way of innovating our way through most of this stuff. But the emotional stuff is more difficult. When you have large migrations and people who feel senses of injustice, for very good reason. There are all kinds of challenges in our world, and we start to think uh, about other kinds of things. You know, the contrast between all of that and then, then a world where in 10 years' time we're going to see uh, probably around 350 million wearable devices, many of them worn for health reasons, transmitting data to your doctor on a continuous basis. This is one of them. This is a, a contact lens manufactured by Google, which detects sugar in your tears. So if you are a diabetic, you just go to sleep with your iPhone by your bed, and it keeps testing the sugar in your tears, automatically using a, a chip, which a computer system the size of a grain of sand, and which is powerful enough to have so hardware, software, and all the rest. It needs no battery. It will last a 1,000 years. So it will be taken out and used some, for someone else when you're dead. <laughs> and this is a biodigital brain. Yes, we can grow chip cells. Chips and brain, we can grow them together. We can grow your brain cells. They grow quite nicely on the surface of chips. Or every brain cell in your body is genetically programmed to understand what a chip is and integrate with it. They just do it naturally. You don't have to teach them. This is a brain cell which is growing onto the surface of a chip. It's producing neurons. It's connecting up with other brain cells to think systems. And it's also touching the, the circuits of the chip and creating connections. So we can create four brats with four brains with four separate chips wired by wireless de devices, and those rats are solving puzzles together. They're sending thoughts across the cosmos to each other. We can enhance the intelligence of a rat, and we can probably do it with human beings. We can give light-sensitive uh, information to a human being by putting it in the back of the eye. We can enable a human being to start controlling things by thought alone, even if their spinal cord is cut. Put your hands up if you'd like a chip inside your head. Now, you see, what we understand is that you can have the best technology in the world, but the most important word of the future is not being smart in technology or innovation. It's about emotion. It's what people actually connect with in their minds and their hearts. The web is making us very, very impatient. You know, uh, uh, if you imagine last night, you saw Britney Spears on TV. You couldn't remember how old she was. You went to her web page, clicked on the web page, and you waited. How long will you wait for Britney Spears' web page to load before you say, hey, hey, life's too short, and you press the back button? <laughs> Put your hands up if you press the back button in less than five seconds on a Friday night because life's too short to waste. 
Ah, okay. What you show me in the Kensington Temple today, in the people of Greater London today, that in two seconds we get irritated, in three seconds we are profoundly fed up with the website, after four we think the whole world has broken down, and after five seconds we have lost the will to live and we have terminated the entire business relationship. <laughs> That's what you told me, right? Now what about your children? How long do you think they wait before they press the back button? 2.5 seconds, correct. How long will you be waiting in 20, 2020 to press that back button? Well, I tell you this, it makes us extraordinarily impatient. So you wait for the ATM, put your hands up if you get irritated when the cash machine takes more than two seconds to produce your cash. <laughs> Come on, it's so slow. <laughs> oh, here's another one. My wife's trying to get money back, or was, from the electricity company. I don't know whether you have the same problem. They always charge you the same every month, but you've never quite used that amount of electricity. It's a good way to save money with them, right? After we had £1,000 owed for, back to us, we were a little bit irritated. So we phoned them up, and she gets through to, you know, your call's very important. Press 1, press 2, press 3, press 4, 28. Put your hands up, and you find that extremely annoying when they have already stolen money from you. You think it is a social crime to put in such a system, and the people who do so should be put in prison. <laughs> See, we get annoyed. We become passionate. Very quickly, emotion is quite close to the ground. Life's too short, my friends. If five seconds is too short to waste getting cash from an ATM, then my goodness me, I plead with you today, tonight, to sort out your destiny and make sure that you don't waste a year or a month or a day or, or even an hour doing stuff that, quite frankly, is okay, but you don't really believe it. It's not really the core of what you feel called on earth to do. And actually, let's discover what it is that your destiny is about. I don't believe we can do this without going outside this planet. Why is that? Because I don't believe you can understand your place in the cosmos unless you go and have a look. Put your hands up if you've looked up sometimes, not in London because you can never see a star in London, but you've gone somewhere for a holiday and you've just been gobsmacked. You looked at the stars and you thought, oh my word. Put your hands up. Do you know, I've been sailing recently. I discovered on the ocean at night the starlight is so bright when there's no moon, I can navigate the boat. I can see dolphins swimming alongside without any torch. Why? Because there's so many of them. I think one of the scariest moments I ever had as a medical student at Cambridge was I actually lay down on the ground on the wet grass one night. It was January, I'll never forget it. And I just looked up. I thought I was going to be sucked off into a billion years of light years away. The sheer nothingness. What is it that keeps me on the earth? Just gravity. What if someone turned it off? <laughs> My friends, we only see reality at night. During the day, we have this halo, this little cocoon, and we're in this little box. You often hear about out-of-the-box thinking. Go and look at the stars at night and break out of your little box and understand who you are and why you're made. You know that light that's coming to you? Uh, friends of mine who are astrophysicists and astronomers tell me that the light has been traveling. When I look at a star with my naked eye, they're saying, you know, Patrick, you just need to know you're looking at history. You think you're looking at the light. You're not. That light is quite old. That light, that signal of light has taken 10 billion years traveling at the speed of light to get to you. It's at over 100,000 miles per hour. And it's taken 10 billion years at that speed. You are looking at the beginning of the universe. You're observing events which happened 10 billion years ago. If that star was to explode and disappear, it would take 10 billion years from now before you'd wake up and notice. Because you would never know. It would take you 10 billion years to discover the event had taken place. Hello? Isn't that extraordinary? Don't you think that's mind-blowing? I'll tell you something else that I think that's mind-blowing, is that we can travel through time. What do I mean by that? Well, we travel through time every, every time we look at history, but every time you look at an old star, you're traveling through time. You know, time is related to the speed of travel. Did you know that? Did you know that every time you get on a plane, you age more slowly than someone who is on the ground, on the Earth? And we've proved it with atomic clocks. Einstein's theory is correct. If you travel towards the speed of light, your own biological clock starts to really slow down to the point where you're only aging one second for every year or two or three or ten years of everyone else on Earth. Isn't that a bit weird? Time is relative, matter is relative, space is relative. doesn't surprise you if you believe in God. What is God? He's beyond space, he's beyond time. He created all this mushy stuff. 
You think that space is just what you can rule. You think that time is what you measure on a clock because you're in a one-dimensional world and you're thinking, my friends, we need to make up. Have a look at the cosmos and then you'll understand your destiny. Here you are. You know, the nearest star to here, the nearest star to our sun is four light years away. You would have to travel at the speed of light for three or four or five years to have any hope of getting to that place. That's the nearest one. But actually, wow, you know, we just passed through 100 billion stars I just showed you. It was that little cluster. We, we, you went through 100 billion stars and you didn't really notice. You just thought it was a blur. Our own galaxy has 100 billion stars in it, as big as our star or even bigger. But you know there are more than one galaxy in the world. Our galaxy is the Milky Way. You see there's a streak of white across the sky. But there are 10,000, thousand, thousand, thousand more galleries that we can see. I'm not talking about the ones that we can't. Oh, my word, space is a huge place. If there is a creator, and I believe there is, my goodness me, what a huge creator. Oh, doesn't that put our own problems in perspective? Saying, my iPhone battery won't charge. <laughs> Get a life. <laughs> is this your destiny? It doesn't stop there. You take all this might, this huge weight of earth, of gravity, of stuff, and we can start pushing it back, like pumping air. You just compress it. We can compress the universe and make it smaller. In fact, we can compress it right back down and make it as small as, well, something 10,000 10, times smaller than this. In fact, something so small that this is the entire universe. Now, this is, a, this is what did I say? There were 100,000 billion, I don't know how many galaxies there are, but everything that there is in the entire universe, we can compress down into something that is a million to the size of that little dot there. How do we know that? That's how we started. Einstein tells us that. And in fact, the universe is expanding at the moment, and it will start to contract, and then we'll... Whoa. I just want you to understand that the laws of physics, you may think, yes, you know, you drop this down. Oh, yes, it dropped. I'm just saying, life is complicated. There are mysteries here within the universe. Uh, so there's nothing to you, I'm sorry to say. If I can compress the entire universe into a pin that size, then I have to say your, your physical stuff is an illusion, is it not? Hello? Isn't it? A bit strange, isn't it? I think, oh yeah, my, my body is this, my body is that. Actually, my body is basically nothingness. It's just a whole load of little bits of nothingness going around not very much. <laughs> I thought I was quite substantial as a person. <laughs> I really am not. <laughs> That's why you can shoot x-rays right through me. Just as God can see right through you too. <laughs> oh my word, we are living in all kinds of other dimensions. We don't even notice them. I just want to understand the scale of creation, just the extraordinary mystery of it. You know, I built this crystal radio as a child. Did anybody do that? Wasn't it a fascinating thing? All you do is you, get, you make a coil of wire and you get a little capacitor and you get a little diode and there's no battery. Who needs a battery? Batteries are really last century idea. You don't need a battery to listen to the universe. You just need a piece of wire and an aerial. And the most amazing electrifying moment was when I hid under the bedclothes and I was supposed to be asleep. And I put the little earphone in my ear and I tuned. And suddenly I was hearing music from the BBC. <laughs> I was picking up signals that had been rocking around the cosmos that I've been completely unaware of because I didn't have the equipment. I wasn't sensitized and I was ignorant. This stuff, this energy, I didn't need any bar or battery or anything. This energy is in the universe, sitting there, just waiting for me to receive. And I believe that, you know. There are other forms of energy that we have within the universe. Energy, vibration, signal, messages, intelligence, it's all in there. But in this crazy time-space world, there are many, many other dimensions that we can hardly understand. Do you hear them? Put your hands up if you know what I mean, that you know what it is to detect signals from another dimension. It's what happens when we pray. It's what we happens when we encounter the voice of God. It's what happens when, well... It's what happens when. I don't know if you walk around First World War battlefields or something like that. Do you have a sense, a sense of something history there? Do you know what I'm saying? You get an echo from the past. You walk into a church, a, a traditional church building, which has had worship and prayer in there for 1,600 years. You walk in there, you sense something. You're picking up echoes, things happening. 
You're talking to an individual. You're looking into their eyes. They haven't told you their future, but you sense something. But you know, but you sense that. You sense something. You're reading something. And of course, we only see in part. The Bible tells us that we have unusual perceptions. We have the capacity to see things which are beyond the laws of traditional physics. You know, beyond the law of the ruler, or what I can get on the crystal radio, that we are programmed to operate outside of the physical and time-space world that we tend to think about so much. It's what we call spirituality. I call it the fifth dimension. What is the fifth dimension? Three dimensions. Uh, two dimensions is a cartoon. 3D is like what you see in the cinema. It's what we see with two eyes. 4D, well, that's time. And then 5D, well, that takes you into a different world altogether. When I was at Cambridge, I had friends who could think in ten dimensions. They could produce mathematical worlds inside their heads. They could construct realities, which are beyond, I'm afraid, my brain to understand. But ten dimensions, eleven dimensions, twelve dimensions, it would make perfect sense to them. Actually, five dimensions I'm perfectly happy with. <laughs> I just want us to stretch our understanding of what our creator is all about this extraordinary creation, Paul says as in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, he says, we only see in part like in a mirror. One day we will see him face to face. We only prophesy in part. One day we will understand. There are many mysteries as we look beyond. Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, one of the most famous people in the New Testament, he writes in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2, that he was caught up into a third heaven to see things too wonderful for words. He says, whether I was in the body or out of the body, I have no idea. You say, well, that sounds a bit like he needs mm -mm, psychiatric help. No, it doesn't. He found he was floating off into, whoa, was it a fifth dimension or a sixth dimension? Like my mathematical friends, perhaps he touched a seventh or an eighth dimension, who knows? He couldn't even find the vocabulary to describe where he'd been. He said, oh, oh, I've seen the Lord. I've seen, I've seen beyond the cosmos. I've seen beyond the stars. I've seen beyond outer space. I've seen beyond that tiny dot that was the start of everything that was. I've seen the mind of God. Oh, he was a bit messed up when he came back. <laughs> he didn't know what to do. Couldn't describe it. He just said he'd been there. Said, I don't want to talk about it, but if you force me, I will. <laughs> Jesus himself operated as a multidimensional person, so he sits down with a woman at the well, the famous story, where we read about it from his favorite, favorite disciple, John, and he describes the story, he sits down with a woman at the well, and he reads her like a book. He says, go and fetch your husband. She says, I don't have one. He says, you're right, you've had five. <laughs> the person you're living with, you're not even married to. <gasps> Jesus could see to the very root of her heart, and before he knew what had happened, she'd gone running down the hill <laughs> to go and fetch all her family and the whole village and say, Come, meet this man who's told me everything I've ever done. Why? How did he know that? Because of echoes from her past that he could read all over her. Because of what she was emanating, who knows? Because of divine insights. I don't know how the mechanism of this works. But he's simply operating in other dimensions. That's what it means to be spiritually aware. He was tuning in his crystal radio. We see the same. It's not just Jesus that was doing it. And uh, shortly after Jesus... Um, uh, left the earth, as the Bible tells us. Uh, there was a, another guy called Philip who, uh, who suddenly felt called. He gives a very curious account of how it happened. Just felt this extraordinary strong prompting to leave where he was and travel a huge long distance. The moment he arrives, he's walking along the street. Uh, at the very moment a, a, a carriage rolls up and there's a, there's a guy, a very, 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 very wealthy and very, very powerful guy. You don't want to get on the wrong side of him. And he's reading aloud from the Old Testament, a book that he clearly doesn't understand. Philip can see in the moment, can read him like a book, just like Jesus read the woman in a book. He can see the whole situation. He knows exactly what he must do. He shouts to the guy. The guy stops. He gets out of the carriage. He says, I don't understand. He says, I know. I can explain. And the person was so extraordinary. He was gobsmacked, amazed, that this person could be operating in another dimension. Everything suddenly was revealed to him. He suddenly understood every word of what this this story was about, which is not about the time-space fact. It was about the creator, about the whole spiritual dimensions of life. It was about things that would change his destiny. And so every human is like a universe as well. You know what? We go out to outer space to find the future, and you go then into inside a very human being itself. Now, this is my daughter, Caroline, and uh, this is Rosa, one of our grandchildren, who's now about 10 months old, and I'm fascinated with life. You know, inside 
a rose's body are 100 trillion cells. Well, that's pretty similar to the universe, isn't it? Whoa, we've got a universe inside your own body. Um, we've got 100 trillion cells in there. We've got 20 trillion molecules per cell. In every cell inside your body, 20 trillion molecules. Can you get your head around that? Oh, my word. Um, uh, I've got 200 trillion atoms per cell. <laughs> 200 trillion atoms per cell. We've got 100 trillion cells, and that's just you. <laughs> what about him? <laughs> that's, another, that's another 100 trillion cells. I'm, lost, I'm, I'm losing track. I can't do the math. This is, this is weird stuff, man. And I'll tell you this, when you put all those cells together, you get more than the total of the individual parts. Something happens. When you assemble that into a human being, when you put half of one cell from a, in, in a sperm and half of one cell from a woman uh, in the egg, and the two become, as the Bible says, one flesh, which is why sex is a mystery. It's not to be trifled with. The Bible talks about one flesh, half of a man from a woman, half a soul from a, a, a man, and the two become one flesh. They fuse, and we get something extraordinary, something amazing starts to happen because this cell starts to divide and produce a complete hybrid of both individual parents, a completely unique collection of 100 trillion cells. But you can take that person to pieces and you will not find them. Isn't that a mystery? You can take them apart. They are not there. Where are they? If the baby's dead, where will you find the person? All the cells are there. So the baby's born. Who's been present at the moment of birth? What an extraordinary privilege and mystery that is. That is a spiritual experience. If you ever have one, isn't it? You know, I often say this, the nearest an atheist ever gets to a spiritual experience is the moment of birth of a child, their own child, and probably being faced with their own death. I'm sorry if you're offended by that as an atheist, but I've seen many atheists die in a hospice, and I assure you it's true. Time after time, I've seen someone who said, ah, we're just a bag of biodata. I am just 100 trillion individual cells. I say, really? <laughs> okay. Three weeks later, he's calling for a priest. Hasn't become a Christian. He's just discovered the obvious. He's more than the sum total of his biological bits. It's a fact. Life itself, by the way, is an extremely unprobable event, but I haven't got time to go into that. That's a subject of another whole hour. You know, the trouble with the cells is that they're so complicated. Do you know you need every single one of these structures and every single one of these genes to be perfectly aligned and completely embraced and all basically more or less created at the same instant at a moment of randomness, according to some people, for anything to happen? It's quite extraordinary. Now, I'm not saying you couldn't get life if you had enough billions of planets and things like that. I'm not, I'm not going to go there. I'm just saying it's extremely difficult to do. Actually... That's why we've looked through all these trillions of stars. We can't find a, find a single thing. In fact, we can't find a single thing that even looks like we want to go there. Apart from just for the gimmick, to say we've been. We haven't found a single place in the entire cosmos that looks the slightest bit attractive to us. There's even got an atmosphere that's worth a breathing, let alone water. Oh, we're in a strange place. We're in a weird place. And all those trillions of stars, this tiny fragment of stuff, which is us, and we can compress all of us into a tiny pinhead and it disappears, but we're still there. You can have a trillion cells in your body, but I can take them all apart and I can't find you. I put them together and I see a miracle. Oh, this is mysterious stuff. Do you know I can read your entire genome for a thousand pounds? It used to cost me a hundred million pounds 15 years ago. I can read it for a thousand pounds now. So you tell me the future. 10 years' time, 20 years' time, we'll do it for a tenner. I have your entire genome, I'll be able to read your entire genome and compare it to the medical records of everybody else in London and decide all the things that's likely to be wrong with you for the next 400 years and gradually fix them one by one before they even become a problem. I've exaggerated some, but not a lot. We are entering extraordinary stuff. And you know, did you know that all life is written in the same code of life? Well, that shouldn't surprise you if you read Genesis. <laughs> same language of life, it's in the centipede, millipede, quadrupede, Human beings, did you know that your genes work in a rabbit fine? I can put genes from your body, they work fine in a rabbit. I can take genes from your body and pop them into a cucumber and some of them will work fine. I can take genes from an oak tree and some of them will work inside your body. You're looking at me like a very, very strange man. Okay? I promise you it's true. Scientists are doing it all the time. It's called cutting and pasting. It's as simple as using Microsoft Word. Just cut and paste. <laughs> you don't even need to know what the genes do. Did you know in 1993 we discovered by accident how to make pure human insulin? Do you know how we did it? Oh, we were just playing, slicing up genes of people, cutting and pasting little fragments and stuffing them into microbes. 
bacteria that make you sick. Just stuff a little bit. Millions of bits of little random bits of genetic code. We haven't a clue what they do, but let's see what happens. One day, someone, uh, someone discovered an extraordinary thing. He said, hey, you never guess what? There's something extraordinary happening inside this glass. I don't know what I put in it last night. I have no idea which particular fragment I put in there. But this glass is making pure human insulin, like brewing beer. All I'm having to do is feed this stuff. And to make another brewing insulin factory, all I need to do is tip a little drop into someone else's flask, feed it, and it becomes another insulin factory. We've been doing that since 1993. Isn't that cool? Isn't that amazing? Oh, my goodness, this energy of life, this dialogue of life. And we read the language of the creator when we look at what is created. The code of life is fascinating. And, of course, we can misuse it because we now can create designer people according to our own image. Okay. We'll take that gene out. I think I'll have a child that's got blue eyes instead of green. I don't think I actually want them to be um, less than you know, a, a child prodigy when it comes to musical ability. So we'll borrow some genetic material from a musician and see what happens. We're not doing that yet, but we're certainly doing it in animals. We're fiddling around, playing with stuff. We do not know what it means, and we do not know what it does. But I'll tell you this. We are more than 100 trillion cells. You get messing with this stuff. It's not just bags of biodata you're messing with. You're messing with humanity. You're messing with spiritual things. You're messing with the very substance of your destiny. Fascinating. Uh, so, organ repair will become routine. Why is that? Because we're doing it. Well, it's happening already. We're already uh, taking cells from people and popping them back after we change them slightly to help them heal their own hearts and brains and spinal cords and retinas. In fact, I was talking about that at a hospital uh, in Leeds just last night to a whole load of ophthalmic surgeons. Uh, and we were talking about how uh, we're growing retina. New light-sensitive cells for people who are completely blind and we're doing it from their arms. What? Now, you really think I've gone a bit crazy. We're scraping cells from their arms putting the cells in the chemical bath to trick them into thinking they're a little bit like an embryo cell. They're not all the way back, but they're like very primitive cells. And then we put another chemical bath on them to trick them into thinking they're part of the eye. Then you feed them and they grow into eye. They grow into sheets of retinal cells. You make a little cut on the side of the eye, stuff the cells in there, stitch it to there, and you hope for the best. We've got mice and rats that have had sight restored to them that were completely blind. We have human beings that are starting to see this is extraordinary stuff on the edge of a revolution. I don't want to get distracted with that. Um, but uh, these are the cells. These are retinal cells. Now, I, I'm just, oh, 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 you heard about oncolytic viruses. These are viruses. We're building viruses designed to hit cancer only, and they don't make people sick. Isn't that fantastic? Amazing stuff. And all these things just remind us of how wonderfully we're made. We've discovered animals that don't get old. We have animals that are living for over 400 years. We're keeping uh, earthworms alive to the equivalent of 200 years. Mice and rats to the equivalent of uh, 170 years of human life. We're keeping monkeys alive routinely to the equivalent of 140 years of life. We're discovering genes in non-aging animals, animals which show no sign whatsoever of getting old. Some whales don't show any sign of getting old. They die of infections, but they never get traditional things like heart disease. Amazing stuff. And so what am I saying? I'm saying just it's a discovery, as I've been as a physician, as I've looked at science, as I've looked at the universe, I've gone to the outer space and come back onto the earth uh, as a time traveler in my mind. As I've gone tunneled down into the depths of your body inside my mind through telescopes and imaging and all kinds of things, it's clear to me that you are more than bags of biodata, right? It's clear to me that there's more. There's a mystery here. And, uh, and uh, you know, when my dad died, I had to shave him the following day. Because his beard was still growing. His corneas would still have given someone sight a day later. When my dad died several hours later, his gut was still digesting his food. My dad died and his bone marrow was still growing red and white cells. His heart was still beating, but not very well, which is why he had no circulation. And a lot of his brain was still living. But my friends, here is the truth. And it was a mystery that there was a moment in time when my dad was there with us in the room. And I can't tell you the moment when he left. It's not like the Hollywood movies. For over 10 or 15 or 20 minutes, 
gone. Now you could go hunting for my dad. Most of my dad was still alive. But he wasn't there. And where was he? And where is his destiny now? These are the most profound questions that a human being can ask. And the most mysterious of all human beings that has ever lived on the face of this earth, as far as I'm concerned, is someone who called himself Jesus and is often called Christ. Jesus is a fact of human history, in case you have any doubt about that. 70% of people in this country do recognize that, but 30% have a wobble about it. They're not sure he even existed. Let me deal with that one straight away. There are all kinds of atheistic, humanistic, whatever, uh, uh, philosophers and historians at the time of Jesus who describe his living, his, uh, his accusation, his uh, teachings, his, res- his, uh, his crucifixion, and the fact that there were many people who believed that he had risen from the dead. That is locked up in Roman and Jewish history. That is a fact. Okay, there's more evidence for the physical presence of Jesus living on this earth as a human breathing person than there is for the presence of Judas Caesar. And uh, with it, we come for all kinds of radical wisdom teachings that are attributed to Jesus in the Bible. And some people say to me, oh, well, I'm not sure he wrote them. Well, all I can say is, in that case, please introduce me to the person who did so I can worship them instead. Why? Because most people on earth would recognize that here are great teachings. Someone must have lived. Someone must have dictated them. Someone must have existed. And if they don't, there was a genius writer who just made it all up. But he is the most famous philosopher that's ever been. I don't think so. Clearly, this person lived. We know that he got into huge trouble because he was so influential. Why was that? Because in three years flat, he was turning the entire religious systems of his day upside down and became a threat even perhaps to some of the local Roman people. He was describing a radical wisdom based on a command to love. A radical wisdom, it said things like, let's say these loudly together, okay? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute. Oh my word, that's heavy stuff. That's really weird. Okay, for the world to hear that was really weird at the time. I tell you this, and for many Christians today, we still haven't got a hold of it. Loving your enemies. What about another one? Love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, did you know it is impossible to teach leadership at a business school without using the teachings of Jesus? Let's be clear. I know, I've taught them so. Because love your customer like you love yourself. And by the way, uh, they, you talk about mentoring or coaching, that's discipling. It's just another name. <laughs> By the way, don't put more than 12 people in a team. Even Jesus couldn't quite manage it. One of them let him down. <laughs> if any- <laughs> okay, here's another one. Let's go for this one. Loudly, please. If anyone wants to be a follower of mine, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus said that before he was crucified. He's saying this, you may think coming to me, I sort out all your problems, he said. In a way, your journey will only just begin. Now, here's another one. He said, let's shout this one out. Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. And <laughs> he said another thing, which caused a tremendous puzzle in the people that he spoke to about. He said, you've got to be born again. What? You mean like my grandchildren? No. You've got to be spiritually born again. It's like... It's like a restart. It's like kicking the reset button on your Windows machine when you rebuilt it for 55 times and the system is so corrupt you just have to wipe the disk clean. Forgiveness. Letting it go. And start again. Let's rebuild it. Clean, clean slate. Clean machine. Put your hands up if you've been annoyed by a Windows machine that's just slower and slower and slower. It needs to be born again, okay? You must be born again. Let's shout this out. You must be born again. He said, you can't imagine that you're going to survive in the presence of God as you are with a corrupt disc and all this kind of crappiness on it. Reset the button. Get it cleaned out. Be born again. Start again. And then he said this. I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You might think you can find lots of ways to God in some way or shape or form or connect with something to the creator of the cosmos or have some metaphysical experience lying down on the grass in Cambridge University at night. But you're not going to find a heavenly father relationship. You're not going to find friendship with God. How could you possibly attempt you, who you are, this tiny scrap of 10 trillion or whatever it is, cells, to think that you can somehow exist 
in the presence of that creator that made these billions and trillions of galaxies and claim somehow that you can have a friendship with him. That's a little far-fetched. That requires a miracle, something which Jesus came to do. So he smashed and burnt through all of those different layers of eternal existence and different warps of time and space and different dimensions and entered our own world as God himself and as a human being. Why? Because it's the only way we would have any chance of understanding anything of what God was like and to translate what it means to be a believer in terms of what it means to breathe the same air together, to seize our destiny, to understand why as a hundred trillion cell human being who is more than a bag of biodata, why it is I'm here what it is I'm called to do and how I'm going to make a difference. And you don't need to be resurrected to start a world religion, Kirasi. Muhammad can tell us that. You don't need it. You can be a great teacher, just like the ones, the things, seem, you can say these things and just die and die and be celebrated for all time. But not the way with Jesus. With Jesus, we have a story which is. Weird, strange, but not as strange as you might think when you think about the universe and trillions of galaxies and bending the laws of physics and all kinds of other things. If that's the case, then, hey, hey, what's this about one tiny piece of stone moving one meter? What's this about a body that is reformulated genetically, it appears, and, uh, and is changed from one form into another? What's about someone who appears to violate the very laws of physics and come back to life, but in a different form altogether, to be able to defy gravity itself and become and, and, and zoom straight into another dimension altogether. Well, that's cool. Exactly what you'd expect if God is God. Um, and there's all kinds of theories that people put about at the time and ever since, but you know what? They don't really work body style and who'd be by. Well, it certainly wouldn't be the disciples because they got martyred for this story and the religious authorities were never very keen on it. I tell you, as a physician, he could never have been only partly dead and somehow convince his followers that he was still the eternal, almighty God and inspired them to do great things when they were so terrified and afraid. I happen to believe that the most logical explanation is a metaphysical one. Actually, along with one-third of all of humankind that are alive today, the impact of this story, most disciples were killed to try and stop it. They were not killed for teaching the teachers of Jesus. They were killed because they insisted he'd risen from the dead. Why would they do that unless they'd seen something with their own eyes which they couldn't deny? It cost them their lives. There was rapid spread internationally. Eventually, the conversion of the Roman Empire led to a, a huge, huge global movement. But you know, most people today get their first dose of what I would call spirituality, not through looking at the stars. There's a little bit of that. Not through walking into an empty church and being struck by the something although there's a little bit of that, not through opening the Bible on their own in a hotel room, although there's a little bit of that. But most people discover something about this through talking to people who are on the journey but a bit further ahead. Uh, they're people who have found that they've, they've, they've built their crystal radio set. <laughs> they're telling a story. They've been born again. They, they, they're starting to hear signals. They are, they, they, they are zoned into dimensions that their friends don't understand. They're sensing the presence of God, they say. They're seeing the laws of physics and time and space broken repeatedly. They're seeing, uh, they're seeing the invasion of the power of the creator himself into our own time-space world. And they're seeing uh, all kinds of personal stories. They're seeing people talking about a personal friendship with Jesus Christ. They're seeing people who were heroin addicts coming completely off without going into cold turkey and coming off that habit and being completely changed within a relatively short space of time. They're seeing serial criminals changing radically their lifestyles and becoming responsible citizens of our country. Why? Because they've met an encounter with Jesus Christ through Alpha in a prison room. And, you know, I've often come across people who said to me, you know, I just wish I'd heard this before. I, I wish I'd heard this before. I wish someone invited me to Kensington Temple last year. Why did I have to wait until whatever it is, the 28th of October or whatever we are today? I can't quite remember what the date is. But why do you have to wait till today? Why couldn't I have got it last year? Life's too short to waste a single day, my friend, doing things you don't believe in. Life's too short today to waste a single day before checking out what your destiny could be. And remember those cogs of eternity. When you find your destiny, you just know you're in the flow and you're in that groove. You're in that place where God is present. You're doing what you were made for. It's the most exciting thing in the world. I'm not saying it's always easy. Jesus said it wouldn't be. But we're serving the King of Kings and serving the Lord of Lords. 
and the Jesus challenge is this. And the Bible tells us that to those who believe in the name of Jesus, he gave the power, God gave the power to become children of God, friends of God. And the, the challenge is this, Jesus' challenge is this, that uh, whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever your walk is with, with God or without him, whatever you think about this stuff. You know, I, I, there was a guy called C.S. Lewis, and with this I finished. A guy called C.S. Lewis, he was one of the most famous philosophers and, uh, of the last century. And he knew he was right. He was absolutely convinced that there was nothing in all this stuff. Uh, he, he thought it was a one-dimensional world. It's just time, space. That's the thing we are. A hundred trillion cells is all he is, and he's exiting at the end of life. Goodbye. But then he, did, he was humble enough to recognize he might be 0.001% chance to be wrong. And he thought to himself, well, if there's even a, an 0.0001% chance, I'm wrong. It's a bit like taking out life cover, well, not life cover, it's a bit like taking out house cover for a fire. I mean, fires do happen, but they don't happen that often, but we take out life cover, or we take out cover for fire insurance because we think, you never know, good to be on the safe side, so he thought, well, I'll take out some fire insurance for my life, in a way. Because if I was wrong, he said, it would be the biggest catastrophe I could ever imagine. I would have wasted my entire universe life here uh, doing stuff, that was irrelevant. I would have had entirely the wrong perception. I would have had no idea what was really behind all this stuff. I would have missed the boat. So he decided to check it out. And he decided he wasn't going to start with the church. After all, you wouldn't judge Karl Marx by communism as Stalin practiced it. <laughs> he decided to start with Jesus. He said, that's what I will start with. I will start by reading what Jesus actually said and see what happens. And he quickly became convinced that this Jesus was the most extraordinary person who had ever walked on the face of this earth. And if he wasn't divine, he must be nearly so. And the more he looked at the accounts of the resurrection, he decided they made logical and intellectual sense. And basically, he argued his way and felt his way right into the very heart of what it was to be a Christian. Not a great conversion experience. It just happened over a period of time. And my challenge to you today, and it might be, you might think, well, all this is very weird, and you're not even sure why you're here. My challenge to you today is to take the Jesus challenge. Don't judge the church. Don't even judge the friend who brought you. But just say, hey, what is this thing? I will have the honesty, the intellectual honesty, to read this stuff, take it seriously, and have a look, even though I'm convinced I'm right. And just see what happens. And you may discover, as many people have done here, that life is too short to waste on things you only half believe in. When you can believe in Jesus Christ, and discover your destiny. Discover why you're here. And be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Know what it is to be forgiven, to be set free, to be used, press the reset button, to have that hard drive rebuilt, to have your past put aside, to be entirely a new creation, as the Bible says, to be able to go on a journey through destiny in that groove as a biological person who's more than that in a multidimensional world, trusting in God and uh, taking hold of not only your destiny, but the destiny of all those around you as you look to explain what's happened to you and take them with you on this extraordinary adventure of life. Amen.